0: I spend a lot of time on my bicycle. Every year it's something between 1500-2000 and once even 3000 miles cruising around the bike paths mostly in Denver. And I sort of like meditate while I do it. I listen to a podcast. I, you know, do a lot of my abstract thinking while getting a little bit of exercise. And it's almost a spiritual place for me. And maybe because it's a spiritual place for me, there's a hazard that keeps on coming up, that crops up all of the time that I sort of, I have to put a little mental effort into avoiding. And it's that on these bike paths, when you do, you know, great distances, there are these tiny little obstacles that you can hit. And for me, it's little critters. Like, you know, sometimes it's mice, or more often it's like crickets and grasshoppers. And, and these bugs that that are right there on the path. And I really, I, I just don't like killing bugs. I, I, I don't like the little crunch below my wheels and the knowledge that I, I took a life for no real reason, just incidents. So I try to swerve around them and, and you know, feel just, just a little bit better about myself for not having killed something needlessly. And it's just sort of something that I habitually do. I mean, even after like a rainstorm covers Denver and I'm out for a walk and there's all these puddles on the sidewalk, if I see a worm struggling on the sidewalk, I will pick it up and move it to the grass. And what, you know, I hope is a way to save that worm's life. You know, I'm, well, I'm a softie. That's, it's just the way it is. And on these bike rides, I'll see all sorts of fauna and animals. You know, there's bald eagles and there's hawks and deer and elk. And there's all sorts of things that are in the, the area around Denver. But on the bike path, the thing that I find most auspicious when I come across it, well, there's are snakes. I think snakes are amazing. They move so hypnotically. And snakes' relationship to the bike path, as far as I can tell, is suicidal. Because snakes are much longer than, you know, crickets or worms even. They can sometimes span the entire path. And I look at those snakes, you know, they're coming in front of me and I'm moving between 10 and 20 miles an hour. And I think, oh my God, I could kill a snake. And so I get off my bike every time and i try to like shoo the snake off the path I, i'll you know usually just walk up to them and they'll slither away into the grass and i'll feel good because other bikers won't hit them and i then i get back and i, I resume my journey and you know put on my podcast and keep going but i i, I like seeing snakes i find them interesting and there was this one time I saw a snake on a bike path. And usually they're garter snakes. These, you know, maybe they're a foot and a half, two feet long, but there's also locally, we have other species here too. There's bull snakes and rattlesnakes. And bull snakes, you know, they're about the diameter of like a banana or or a cucumber. And they're three to four feet long. And they're just really, really cool looking. And I always stop and I always look at the bull snakes. And there's this one time I was on a busy part of the path. Uh, I just finished, I think, about 17 miles. I had about eight miles to go on my ride. And, and I get to this section, and then there's this bull snake sunning itself on this warm path, and it's loving life. And I know that if I, let, if I pass it, and just go on my way, that bull snake is going to be crushed by another biker. It, it is just going to happen. So I get off my bike and I walk over to the bull snake, which is just sunning itself, it's loving life. And I start to try to shoo it away. I, I, I first try to get close to it uh, and it's, it's not really moving. So I grab a stick and I push this bull snake and at first it doesn't react. And I'm like, are, are you okay, snake? And then it, it sort of like springs to life. It like notices that I'm moving it and it coils into a circle in that sort of strike posture. Its head comes up. Its head maybe like nine inches, a foot off the ground. And it's almost like its its head, it flares that that skin behind its neck. It flares and its tail comes up a few inches off the ground. And there's this, sound that's coming out of its mouth. Like a, like a like it's like a rattling. It's a like... I can't I can't do it I can't do the justice to it with my mouth. But this snake is rattling, it's in strike position and I and I and I take a step back and I'm like, whoa, wait. I I thought this was a bull snake. Bull snakes are not poisonous. But the rattlesnakes in the air, this snake looks a hell of a lot, like a rattlesnake, and its tail is even moving. And and I'm like, oh my God. I almost touched a rattlesnake. And and I step back and I look at it for a while. And uh, my brain is going back and forth. Rattlesnake, death. Bull snake, fine. And I still want to save the animal either way. And I realize that snake, it's lying. It's definitely not a rattlesnake. It just is doing a hell of a good impression of a rattlesnake. And eventually I, I shoo it off and, 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 I, and I think to myself, wow, that was, that was impressive snake. Like you really made me doubt myself and you defended yourself by, by lying, by pretending to be something that I know is dangerous. And this is an adaptation or maybe just a behavior that you've learned or instinctually just know for self-preservation. And I realized that lying, well, that's evolutionarily advantageous for survival. In fact, lying might even be necessary. Lying is an incredible strategy that animals and humans have developed and really worked hard on. And I find this, you know, as a journalist, as somebody whose whose main gist in life is is about telling the truth, well it's quite a thing to reckon with because lying is so darned effective. In fact, truth, well truth is is not effective. If the snake couldn't coil up, it it couldn't scare off its adversaries. And we see so many examples in the natural world of animals that can impersonate other animals to their advantage. How many moths have eyes on the back of their wings to make a predator think that, oh, it's actually looking in the face of another predator and that that subterfuge saves that animal's life. In fact, you could even say that truth, well, truth is actually evolutionarily disadvantageous in so many cases. And I'm gonna give you the example of the rattlesnake. It's known that right now the, the rattlesnakes in urban areas around the world, mostly in, in, you know, mostly in America is where we have the most rattlesnakes, but rattlesnakes are actually rattling less than they used to. I mean, there still are rattlesnakes that rattle, but the incidences of rattlesnakes actually rattling is decreasing because the rattlesnakes who rattle often get killed. They display to a human that they're dangerous and the human will go and kill the rattlesnake, which is such an interesting problem to have. The rattlesnake was initially a warning to say, hey, I don't actually want to fight you. I don't actually want to use my venom to kill you and I'm just warning you that there's a problem and other animals realized that that was an effective strategy so they imitated the rattlesnakes but now the rattlesnakes are being killed because they're telling the truth about who they are. It's a hell of a thing. This podcast today is about lying. It's about truth and how we want the world to be and how the world actually is. And it's a, I mean, this is a depressing subject for me. I'm a journalist. I'm I'm someone who has essentially taken an oath. I have a duty to my listeners and my readers to do my utmost best to convey reality as I understand it in an honest way to you, my listener. And if I don't do that, you have every right to be incredibly angry at me and to no longer be my listener and call me names. To leave angry comments in the description down below saying that Scott is a bad journalist. And I I mean, I get actually a fair amount of those comments. And I think the reason why I get a lot of those comments is because I actually tell the truth so often when in reality, a lot of us want lies. And that lying is actually, well, it's a great strategy for success. Let me give you another example from another totally different context. On June 6th, 1944, the Allied forces in England were going to land in France on a beach called Normandy in an event called D-Day. And in the run-up to this, there was a a massive disinformation campaign to basically confuse the Nazis, who knew that, that something was coming, but they didn't know where the landing exactly was going to be. And they had to put their forces on the right part of the beach. And if they did it successfully, they would massacre tens of thousands of soldiers who would be involved in the liberation of Europe and the defeating of the Nazis. And we all know that killing Nazis is a great thing to do in World War II. There's no problem with that. But to do that, allies had to lie. They had this disinformation campaign. They would, they, they took a, a dead soldier and they, they dressed him as an officer and put covert coded instructions with misinformation of where the allied landing would actually be. And it washed up on the shore and the Nazis found it. And they believed that the Americans and the British troops were going to land on a different area of France. And the the, the Nazis built up their defenses in, in the wrong place and a lot fewer soldiers died because of it. Espionage is an act of war and it is incredibly effective. And if you don't lie really well in the military, you're going to lose. A lot more soldiers. We see this in Ukraine right now. There's disinformation campaigns in the propaganda world, but it's also in the way we hide artillery pieces on the battlefield. We have like inflatable artillery pieces so that when we do, when the Russians do drone strikes on artillery, sometimes they hit balloons instead of hitting actually useful weapons of war. Deception and subterfuge are effective and necessary because the army which actively telegraphs its punches is the army that loses. And the architects of these big lies, we call them heroes. We we valorize the ability of Cold War spies to steal secrets and, and do dirty tricks because it gave us victory in battle. But on an individual level, a lot of people lie to give themselves unfair advantages on the people around them. And, well, it's disheartening. I mean, you probably know liars, right? You've probably caught someone out in a lie. And when you've seen them do it and you have the evidence to show that this person is just full of it, well, you sort of hate them. You you judge them and you don't, I mean, you don't really wanna be around them anymore because that liar, you know, they they undermine trust. There was this person that I knew, uh, this was probably 10, 15 years ago, uh, who would come over to my house and hang hung out with her all the time. Uh, we'll call her Beth, her name's not Beth. And she told me that as a kid, as a younger person, she would steal things from people's houses like small things like things that weren't necessarily important like a pa- like one sock from a drawer and she would get sort of like a thrill out of it and the, and doing this sort of like small little crime was you know a private thing that she had for herself and she would, she would never do it anymore but when she told me this well, I didn't wanna hang out with her anymore. I, I, I felt like I just couldn't trust her because she was a liar. Because when you enter into someone's house, there's this implicit understanding that you will be trustworthy with the stuff that they own and not play games. And I lost a ton of respect for her. But the funny thing was, is that she was telling the truth. Right? She was telling me something in confidence about her personality where if she had just lied, well, I wouldn't have lost the respect for her. And I feel like that's actually a violation of a, another fundamental value that I have is that we should all be truthful about the things around us. How do we sort out this complexity, these contradictions? How do we be humans and good people in a world where it's so obvious that lying is, well, oftentimes, the best strategy? How can I be a journalist in a world knowing that the, the keys to success are so frequently misinformation instead of information? How can I be in a journalist where people look at journalists and they, they assume that we're liars? They assume that we're no better than politicians trying to get ahead in the world by making up stories that just make us look better or get more views or more clicks. Because the truth is, the sad truth is, that lying works. Lying keeps that bull snake alive. And it gives you the advantage in accomplishing your goals. And I personally hate this truth. And one of, the, I mean, one of the things that I love most about journalism is when I get to expose a liar. You know, I, I go in and I meet somebody and, and usually when I'm interviewing somebody, I presume that they're telling me the truth. But when I find out that they've lied, oh my God, it's, it's like I feel personally betrayed and I take a great joy and get satisfaction out of laying out evidence that they have lied. It's just—it's—it's it's part of my nature, and I, I can't even tell you if it's necessarily a good part of my nature, because sometimes people want the lie. They want to believe a lie, both the person who's telling it, because it has become a part of their fundamental story, and there's also an audience that that person often has, and they want to believe the lie too because sometimes lying makes us feel better about the reality of the world. As a journalist, I want to explore the reality of the world and expose it, and oftentimes that puts me in conflict with people that I don't want to be in conflict with, that I would rather actually see the good in. But I do this because I want to believe that a society built on truth is somehow fundamentally morally superior to a lie that's built on mythology. And I think maybe this bent in my personality goes back to like enlightenment era thinking, you know, 1700s when we're discovering science uh, and objective reality. And we have this idea that there's like laws in the universe to some degree, and we can come at a concept of truth which is outside of the individual. Well, in science, you're looking for truth, and it doesn't matter if the truth is something you don't want to believe, the truth is out there. And I see myself as maybe part of that project to some degree. And I also wonder now, what happened before the Enlightenment? Like in the medieval era, you know, before when when everything was sort of subjective, we had this. These, we had whole science at that point was called alchemy, and it was magic. It was about your subjective experience in the world. And at that time, did they hate liars too? Did did they or they did they see lying as just sort of the way things go? I think a lot about the belief in God when I go back to that because. There's a lot of examples of people making oaths to a deity, putting their hands on a Bible or swearing to something which is greater than them that maybe is gonna catch up to them in the afterlife and punish them if they're not being truthful. And I think that belief in a supernatural world was the way that, that people could learn to trust each other. Because lying is often about the individual and truth is about society. I might gain an advantage over you right now that might make me more money or make me more impressive or something. But if everything I do is built on lies, how do I escape that? Eventually reality will catch up to you. As a journalist, I guess maybe I feel like I am reality catching up with liars. It doesn't always make me popular. One of the interesting characteristics about lying is that once you start lying, well, it creates patterns that you can't really get out of very easily. It's the danger of it. Because if someone finds out that that bull snake is just a liar, well, people are going to go eat that bull snake. And they're not going to trust anything that that bull snake does, even if the bull snake has some maybe defenses that it has available to it. When I found out that my friend was a potential kleptomaniac on a very small scale. I didn't trust anything that she ever did other than that. That became her whole identity. So once you start lying, you have this pressure to keep up the lie. There's another Nazi saying, which was, if you tell a lie, tell a great big lie. Because it's not worth it to get stuck in the small lies. You want to pepper in truth. And when you lie, you want it to be the sort of lie that people, well, that changes the society around you. And you actually get an advantage out of it. Because otherwise, all you're doing is lying for meaningless purposes. You want that lie to actually give you power. Of course, Goering was a horrible, horrible person who helped Design the Holocaust. So take that piece of advice for what you will. And it's interesting to me that when the liar ultimately fails and is either disclosed as a liar by say, a journalist or, or uh, someone who you just find out, you find out there's too many contradictions in what they say, that once they have been exposed as a liar, the liar has two more options, right? One is to come clean and to admit the truth. This almost inevitably fails. Or it's just to keep on doubling down and lying and lying and lying because you can't escape that cycle. I think this is how pathological liars are born, is that it starts with a little lie, or maybe even a big lie, and they can't get out of it, so they they get into this pattern where they find it's actually easier to lie. It's easier to come up with um, untruth than it is to bother with truth, which is actually very hard to keep up with. And you don't get rewarded for truth. Think about the scientific literature. There are so many clinical trials out there and experiments. And the way it works is you come up with a hypothesis and then you test that hypothesis against objective measures. And if you get a good result, you get a publication in a paper and maybe that helps you get your tenure or there's some sort of um, product which comes out of it. You certainly get accolades by people for being the discoverer of something new but there's almost no prize at all for a null result where your hypothesis didn't work out. And there are so many meta-analyses that's come out after the fact that have shown that lying is a huge problem in the scientific literature because people invest a lot of time trying to uncover new hypotheses and testing them. And there's just so much pressure to create scientific results that aren't Actually, real. Because if you publish that result and people don't, aren't able to check it in a systematic way, well, you're going to get that promotion. You're going to get that drug approved. You're going to get some sort of prize. There are almost no journals dedicated to null results, right? There's almost no journals of people saying, hey, I wanna see if this drug actually makes someone's kidney failure go away and it didn't work out so they publish it. No, those results don't ever actually get put out there because the, journals are based on the, on the positive. They wanna tell a positive story. That's, that's what, what drives the headlines. The null results don't get interest which means that truth doesn't drive interest. And this is a known problem in the scientific literature. Of course, once you fake your data once and you build your career on that fake result, you have to keep on going. You have to keep on building on that fakeness. And those foundations, well, they crumble eventually. But hopefully, you bet, you bet, that they crumble after your career has already pushed you into retirement and you have your beach house in Malibu or, or you know that nice vacation home on the lake. You already hope that you've escaped because that's your win condition. And maybe people never find out about it. I did a little digging into the available research online and there's this really you know, cool uh, behavioral psychologist at Duke University called Dan O'Reilly. Uh, And he's an interesting guy. Uh, You know, if you go to his Instagram profile, he looks incredibly unique. As a a kid, he was burned on the face and and, and it made it, he's not really disfigured, but it made it impossible for him to grow a beard. So when you see him on his Instagram profile, he has half a beard. Uh, And, you know, he says that the reason why he keeps his beard like that is because Well, he knows it looks weird, but it's also an honest expression of who he actually is because he really believes in this, well, he believes in truth. And even if it looks weird, he wants to tell the truth about who he is. And I find that very, very inspiring. And there was this article about, you know, he'd, he'd come out with a new book on, on lying uh, back in 2018, uh, and there was this great review of it in the Washington Post. And rather than read passages from the book, I'm gonna, gonna look a little bit about, at that article um, just to give you a little bit of his wisdom. Here's the problem with lying. This is from the article. Research shows that the more you lie, the easier it gets, and the more likely you are to do it again. And then quoting Dan Arley, the dangerous thing about lying is people don't understand how the act changes us. We as a society need to understand that when we don't punish lying, we increase the probability it will happen again, O'Reilly said. In a 2016 study in the journal Nature Neuroscience, O'Reilly and his colleagues showed how dishonesty alters people's brains, making it easier to tell lies in the future. When the people uttered a falsehood, the scientists noticed a burst of activity in their amygdala. The amygdala is a crucial part of the brain that produces fear, anxiety, and emotional responses, including that sinking, guilty feeling you get when you lie. But when scientists had their subjects play a game in which they won money by deceiving their partner, they noticed the negative signals from the amygdala began to decrease. Not only that, but when people face no consequences for dishonesty, their falsehoods tended to get even more sensational. And this is that slippery slope problem. When you lie and you get away with it, you probably get these dopamine chains that reinforce the fact Hey, that that you got away with it and you got away with it and you got a reward and your brain circuitry, well, it changes and it makes the lying more advantageous than the truth. Okay, before I go on any further, we're going to go to that point in the podcast where I tell you that, hey, there's no ads here. And I'm doing this because I love this project. And I think that if you've made it all the way to a half an hour into this project with me, you probably get something out of this. For those of you who love supporting podcasts and being part of this sort of investigative unit, uh, sending me the great tips that you give me and these like subjects for new shows, I wanna tell you that I have this way that you can support the show and actually be part of the creative process by joining up at my Patreon. And it's not very expensive. It's more expensive than nothing though. Uh, I think it's like 10 bucks a month and you get podcasts and shows a little bit early and you also get a direct line to me. And I'd love you to consider signing up for it. There's a link down below in the show notes. It would, it means so much to me because Honestly, when you look at podcast metrics and what ads are worth, you're worth about half a cent. That's how ads value you. Uh, and I think that the whole idea of trying to monetize a podcast where people, humans, are worth one cent is ridiculous. It doesn't work. It doesn't support actual useful and good content. So I don't do ads. And I instead, I I hope that some of you would consider um, supporting the show that way, but if not, I get it. There's there's shows that I don't that I don't support that I listen to, uh, and I get it, and that's no problem. This is a free thing. You listen to on um, this on Spotify, and it's free on YouTube. I do run ads because hey, that's just the way it goes. Uh, but here, I don't, and instead, I ask you to do this other favor for me, if you would. Download the show on Apple and leave me a five-star rating. Or leave, if you're listening to Spotify, just leave me a five-star rating. But if you do, I will read your comments. And you can make the comments funny. I actually would prefer them to be funny. Tell me about how you love Rubik's Cubes. And I will read that if there's a five-star, because that helps the ratings. And it gives me, well, it gives me feedback from people who, well, they like being here. I'm going to read one of these reviews. Actually, a couple of reviews came in. I'll I'll save some for future shows as well, because I don't want to just bore you talking about myself. But I'll read this one review. It came from Frida35 on Apple uh, just a few days ago. Thought-provoking. The one-person podcast format is all too often overly stilted and scripted. Scott is able to breathe life into it like a professor of the college class that you actually enjoyed attending. He effortlessly weaves in personal anecdotes into larger stories, and the result is seamless. Interview formats or two-person pods only seem to exist to make up for a single host's lack of charisma or things to say. Scott doesn't need anyone else. He's a spectacular storyteller. This is a five-star podcast. I love that. I love that so much because I love this monologue format. Uh, It just lets me go in depth on a topic that honestly usually is keeping me up at night and I'm grinding on this concept of lying perhaps. And maybe at three in the morning last night, I was grinding on the question of lying and how to address it. And now I get the opportunity to talk to you about it and tell you what my dream time thoughts really are. But I also do some interview formats too. I've been doing a lot more of those recently because there's actually some people that I really enjoy talking to. So free to 35, I love that you love these uh, monologues. And you know, honestly, if anyone's listening to this and, and they also like monologues, I sometimes run polls down below and I ask people, do you want my interview shows or do you want my monologue shows? And this is actually super valuable to me to know because I can do both, but both take time and resources away from the other things that I do. And so there's going to be a poll down there in Spotify right now where I'm going to ask you, do you like monologues or do you like interviews? And just tap an answer for me and let me know which one you like, and I'll do more of those. Or maybe you like both, in which case, God bless you. Let's listen to both. Okay, so there I've said it. Just join Spotify if you can. Leave some reviews. It helps me continue this and let's go back into lying because there's something that I have to tell you about Dan O'Reilly that's really, really interesting. So Dan O'Reilly wrote the book, The Honest Truth About Dishonesty. And he had that great, those great lines, those great insights about how the brain gets rewired when you lie. But here's the thing, his study May have included incredibly fake data. One of the things that he wrote about, uh, just to summarize it, was that he used this data from rental car returns. You know, you sign those contracts about, um, you know, did you hit anything? Are there any problems with the car, etc.? And what he, what the data that he wrote about in his book was that, that if you put the honesty pledge at the beginning of the contract, people would be more honest when writing that contract instead of like putting that honesty pledge at the end, you know, where you put your signature. And, you know, he found all this data for, again, it was from rental car company contracts uh, that had sort of A and B groups. And this data, he said, look, if you put the pledge in the front – people will actually be more honest. And this research was grounding in his books, it was mentioned in TED Talks, and and even the IRS, the Internal Revenue Service in the United States claimed it worked for them on various governmental forms when they're they're trying to have people accurately put their text data there. They thought it would, would raise the incidence of people actually being honest on those forms. But it turned out that that study had mostly fabricated data in it. And I'm not going to go into all of the ways that it was uncovered, but I will say that um, Casey Feisler, who's uh, a great researcher, data researcher uh, here in Denver, Colorado, has a, a number of wonderful Facebook and Instagram posts, TikTok posts about how his data was um, shown to be fraudulent. He had worked with other professors and they'd compiled data into these spreadsheets. But the funny thing was that that when you actually looked at the data and you did the statistical analysis on it, it was impossible to be real data. Uh, It was was just, and and all the fake data was put in in a different font. And it turns out that there is no evidence, no real evidence that putting an honesty pledge at the beginning of a form is going to make someone actually more honest. And Aureli has gotten, well, he's gotten a ton of, well, academic appointments, a big social media following, uh, quite a, a bit of money and prestige for his work on lying and cheating, which was based on fraudulent data. Now, he has, of course, come out and, and said repeatedly in the press, you know, I'm going to quote you from, this is like a Daily Mail um, uh, response. He says, I can see why it's tempting to think that I had something to do with creating the data in a fraudulent way. I can see why it would be tempting to jump to that conclusion, but I didn't. If I knew that data was fraudulent, I would have never have posted it. That's what he says. But it's also clear that, well, he was the, where the buck stopped. He was the top guy. And... He faked the data. The expert on lying maybe learned that lying was an incredibly effective strategy. And the allegation is that maybe he pursued it. And he's been under scrutiny on several other times. In in 2010, he may have told NPR that uh, insurance agencies show that dentists often disagree whether x-rays show cavities or not, but they go about doing those Dental surgery is anyway, because it gives them more money. Well, there was no evidence that, that was accurate either. It just It just feels accurate, right? It feels like it should match reality. And there's this pleasure that we get, right, as journalists, as, as people in the press, as truth seekers, to just grind Rayleigh into the dust for what may have been a lie, even though at the same time, we liked the lie in the first place. It felt right, it, it answered some sort of, hey, That, that intuitively that felt right. You would, you would make an honesty pledge at first and then you'd be more honest. There's something that, about that that seemed right and we made him a hero. And how often does that happen on social media anyway? Like how often, you know, I work on the fringes of science a lot and I know where what I say when it, when it goes beyond the science, but it's so unbelievably clear that if, we're, if we wanna get famous, if we wanna have a social media following on YouTube or Instagram or whatever, you wanna make more and more exaggerated claims about what works, like if if you're giving advice about business you want to give more and more outrageous advice for how many outrageous profits you can get by investing in you know crypto or or how much weight you can lose by taking this pill or jumping into this ice bath or taking this pilates class you know you you want to make claims that stand out and the truth is is that well not everything stands out not everything that is true is actually groundbreaking. The best way to lose weight is probably just to reduce your caloric intake and get some regular exercise. That advice is sound, but we want that supercharged feet. And when you offer that supercharged feet, people will come to you. They will flock to you, especially if you can create notice, if you can be flashy, if you're exceptionally attractive, or you do those stunts that, that, you know, look cool in a two-second clip on the introduction of a TikTok video. These outrageous claims are what we want. And I say we want it because it's clear through the data that because that's what we watch. Even if we don't want to be the sort of people who watch lies, our actual actions, the truth of the matter is that we want that 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 who we are is how we act. it's a real conundrum because then when we out those people as you know blatant liars and we throw them under the bus. And we want to think that everything that they had ever done was a lie. We, we we destroy their whole character. We want to jump on that cancel culture bandwagon because we feel morally justified for doing so. And I cannot entirely disagree with that feeling. And it's something I struggle with all the time. Most recently, you know, people who've been following me, I've been noting that there's a lot of lies around the Wim Hof method, particularly with Wim Hof's own stories and how he presents himself. It's like, you know, having 26 world records. Well, there's no record of those world records. I can only verify two or three ever having occurred. And the other ones are just, it's just a number. I have 26 world records and there's no way to fact check that. And it annoys me. It annoys me that when I look at, say, Wim Hof's Wikipedia, I see that it's constantly lilting towards the PR side of things, where things that are factually backed up with sources are just becoming conjecture. And it's because there's bad actors, and I think I know exactly who that bad actor is by looking at IP addresses and looking at other information. And I can be like, I know this individual, I know your actual name, and I can see what you're doing. And yet it's an effective strategy to promote something. I see comments on my YouTube videos where people's names, you know, they'll they'll, they'll post a nasty comment and it'll be one name and then like 10 minutes later, it will be the same comment from a different name. And I know that there's a sort of a strategy to undermine my work and undermine the veracity of what I do. And it is, well, it's effective and it's sad. That it's effective. Because what I'm doing is I'm going out and trying to tell the truth about something with documentation, with grounded evidence. But it's clear that not everyone wants the truth. Not everyone even values the truth. In fact, people might find the truth impolite. How often do we lie because we want to save face for somebody? You know, maybe your you know your mother baked you a pie. And, and it wasn't a good pie, right? It was, it was a bad pie. It was too salty and you, you couldn't really chew it. But, but when she asked you how it was, you definitely told her it was a great pie because it's impolite to not tell someone that they, they, who put effort into something and created something out of love. Well, it's impolite to tell them that they didn't make a great pie. And so we make this white lie and then that person thinks that they're a better cook than they are and maybe that is okay because we want to preserve the relationship. But how does a journalist exist in that world where there is a mythology and factual inaccuracies that are obvious, that are, that are trackable, that are documented, that, that can just be outright shown How can a journalist exist in a world where we actually prefer lies to truth? Maybe all we ever wanted was the lie. Maybe we saw something that was sort of crazy and outside of the bounds and and looking at a lie was actually beneficial to our mental health. This, you know, this is, the guts of the placebo effect, right? It's just simply the idea that something which gives you hope can help you change physiological processes in your body. Not unlike how lying changes the amygdala circuits in your body to become more of a liar. Well, there's the positive spin that sometimes the lie actually makes you a healthier person. Wrap your mind around that. Sometimes having a myth of an indomitable individual who can break all the limits of the world uh, and gets over their own grief and mental struggles through constant fighting against the elements, sometimes that gives people inspiration to do the same thing. And that, that idea of constantly facing adversity makes someone a better person. How do we deal with that contradiction? I struggle with it. I struggle with it every single day. It keeps me up at night. And you know, I did this other podcast not so long ago. Uh, it was it was uh, podcast 23, I Am Become Death, Oppenheimer and the Kali Yuga, which is about the problem that Oppenheimer had to face, right? He was facing the fact that he was gonna create a nuclear weapon that would be the dawn of the nuclear age. And it's a great conversation, Uh, With my friend um, Sid Sid Uh, Rao. And it's the question about duty. What does somebody do? What is someone's duty in a world where there's no obvious answers? And while Oppenheimer was talking about the duty to be a scientist and let his science. Proceed. I deal with this question of duty all the time. As a reporter, what is my duty in any moment? Is it my duty to spread a lie or to uncover the truth no matter where it leads? And it's, it's clear that in some cases, I have the problem of the rattlesnake, right? The rattlesnake that I began this whole conversation with is that the rattlesnake who tells the truth of who it is sometimes gets killed because people don't like rattlesnakes that have poison. In fact, we would rather all be the bull snake, the person who pretends to be someone with the venom, who has the actual goods, but isn't. That there's no actual grounding reality underneath it. I don't think this is going to be an issue that I'm going to resolve today on this podcast. I don't think that this is going to be a we- a thing that. I will ever not struggle with because it, it's a fundamental tension in the duty that I have and, and just general lilt that I have as somebody who is, I guess, a truth teller, who presents myself as somebody who tells the truth. And there's also some contradictions in this. You know, I know that I'm a deeply fallible human, just like every other deeply fallible human, and When I talk extemporaneously like this, I'll bet you, actually, I know I know this is true, sometimes I'm given towards hyperbole. Like if I don't have an article right in front of me, sometimes I will opt you know, unconsciously for a more impressive figure. If I say that, you know, 40% of people in a clinical trial improved, and and I'm doing this off the top of my head, well, if I actually go to the paper later, it might have actually only been 26%. And sometimes there's this natural lilt to impress people because bigger numbers sound better than littler numbers. And And I think that that is something that I struggle with when I do extemporaneous things like, you know, in this podcast. Although I don't know if I, I, I spoke about too many studies that I didn't have in front of me right now. It's certainly a tendency for humans to want to uh, impress other humans. I think that's a minor sin. And I'm sure if you go back through my podcast, you'll see moments where I've, I've probably done that. On the other hand, I think subterfuge and intentionally reversing the truth and making claims that you know are like contradictory, like just straight up false, I find that mean. I find that sort of bullying. And I don't think society at a very large level can function if we actually had everyone sabotaging the truth for their own personal gain again and again. Because what sort of society does that become? It becomes a society where the individual is the only thing that is important and not the general principle that we're trying to achieve some sort of real truth with our existence here on earth. I don't really quite know how I can end this particular podcast. Like I don't know how this all comes together, except we all have a duty to be the best people we can be. And it's very clear that lying is effective. I, I can't resolve this problem in my brain. I can't come to a solution because I think ultimately Whatever, however, we act on this information is ultimately going to be left up to us. But I think that there are going to be people in the world who are liars, and there's going to be people in the world who are truth tellers. And the sad truth is, I think that the truth tellers are at a disadvantage. I think that the truth tellers who don't get to continually and pathologically make up things because they have to go check their facts and they have to at least try. I think they're at a disadvantage from people who can say whatever the hell they want. And I don't think it's a war that we're gonna win. And that's a little depressing, but maybe it's just something that we have to do. It's something that a a war that we need to wage and continually do our duty in this environment and realize that all of us are fallible and none of us are gonna get it right. Maybe though, you can be a rattlesnake if you're a rattlesnake and you can be a bull snake if you're a bull snake. And as I go riding on my my 3000 miles a year, which actually has happened. I do, I have done 3000 miles in a year. But as I go out there and I do this, we should all try to do as little harm as we can to those little critters that we might run over and that we should try to strive to preserve the truth and preserve life, because what else are we doing on this earth? From Scott Carney Investigates in Denver, Colorado. This is me talking to you from Pokey Bear LLC. Thank you so much for being here with me.